You can open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. We'll be in chapter 2 this morning. We're, again, taking a little break from our time in Luke's gospel. And so we're trying to take a chapter at a time of Proverbs. When I was a student pastor working with uh, junior high and high school students, we would go to these summer camps. We'd have a week for junior high, a week for high school. And, you know, we would typically have like six or eight kids in a room. And, and it, but it wasn't uncommon kind of, you know, at the end of the night, activities are done for a lot of kids to gather in one room. And they're all just kind of talking, right? And I, I noticed this every year, especially in middle school camp, it, you would get to this point where literally everyone in the room is talking and nobody's listening. And since everybody's just trying to talk and nobody's actually listening, then, then what these kids, they don't even realize what they're doing, but they just elevate their voice and they elevate their voice. And then it just becomes this roar of these various voices just being tossed around this room. Now, the book of Proverbs sort of portrays our world similarly. That way, there's these voices that are calling out to you. And there's all these, there, there's a voice in our text of, of the perverse man. There's the voice in our text of, of the strange woman. There's the voice of wisdom calling out. Other places in Proverbs, there's the voice of this woman named foolishness. And as you walk through this life, you've got all these different voices calling out to you. And the book of Proverbs is saying, listen to wisdom. Listen to wisdom. That's what we saw in chapter 1, that you should seek wisdom. And then Proverbs 2 begins by telling us, how do we do that? How do we seek wisdom? Right? We saw last week in, in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 32, that the complacency of fools destroys them. So wisdom is calling out, but the fool is complacent, doesn't listen. Remember, fool is a, in the Bible is a moral category, not necessarily an intellectual category. You can be very smart and be a fool by not heeding God's wisdom. The complacency of fools destroys them. The fool ignores the call. Well, what's the opposite of complacency? Well, the first four verses here tell us, if you, if you picked up the notes, you know, we're kind of centering on uh, these, these words that kind of direct the text. The first word I want us to see in the first four verses is, is this word, if. And it, it explains for us how to pursue wisdom. Again, if you kind of mark up your Bible, you can, you can see that word if in verse 1, in verse 3, and in verse 4. And what Solomon, the author of Proverbs, is doing is he's sort of setting up these conditions. If you meet this con condition, then this will be the result. It's called an if-then statement. If this happens, then this follows. And so these if statements, these, these conditions lay out for us the way wisdom must be pursued. And the reality is that we said last week, we're not born wise. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, right? We're not born wise. And so therefore, we're inclined towards folly. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. We're born separated from God. We're born inclined towards foolishness and rejecting God's will and God's way and God's wisdom. So wisdom, then, is not automatic, right? We don't drift into wisdom. We need spirit-empowered effort. And the first four verses teach us what that looks like. Look there in verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, 
making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. So how do we receive wisdom? First, Solomon says, well, you need to be open to receiving it. Right? If, if you receive my words, that's a willingness to grasp onto the wisdom that's being passed down from Solomon to his son. But remember that Solomon's goal is to instruct his son, not just in like how to be really smart, but how to have real wisdom, which is living God's way in God's world for God's glory. So the wisdom that comes from Solomon are essentially the words that come down from above. It's God's wisdom, and Solomon just becomes the channel through which God's wisdom is just directed to his son. You can see it actually really clearly in our text when he says in verse 2, making your ear attentive to wisdom. Well, where does this wisdom come from? Verse 6, for the Lord gives wisdom. It is from God that Solomon acknowledges, I'm just sort of passing along this wisdom to you. And if you receive my words, and if you would treasure up my commandments. Right? What commandments? Well, God's commandments. Right? This is, this is God's wisdom. The Father's a, a mouthpiece for God. And so if you'll, if you'll receive God's will, if you'll treasure it up, right? To, to, to treasure is to hide away something for a specific purpose. The, the assumption in the text is that we treasure up and we store up and we hide away what we value. What we find valuable, we store away. You know, I had a friend in, in college and he was obsessed with the New York Yankees. And, and he, he said, man... I could, just, I could just mention players that played for the Yankees in the 1970s, but I can't remember a Bible verse to save my life. And his fiance was quick. She said, you know, you remember what you care about. And I thought, oh, that hurts. Well, that's what, that's what the Solomon is assuming here. You store up what you care about. Think of the way Job talks about this. Job 23, verse 12. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. I've valued it. I've treasured it more than food. Psalm 119.11 is probably more familiar to you. I have stored up your word in my heart so that I will not sin against you. You treasure up, you store up, you hide away what you value. In fact, Solomon assumes that, that this treasure, it's stored up within you, right? And treasure up my commandments with you. Store up wisdom. The idea is to store up God's word in your heart so that you might respond God's way and God's world for God's glory despite whatever circumstances come your way, right? The reality is life is lived way too fast for us to be able to call time out, pull out our little pocket Bible, and say, all right, somebody cut me off. Oh, be slow to anger. All right, I guess, you know, you've got you've to have that hidden. You've got to be convinced. You've got to be transformed. You've got to be changed. So when the pressure comes, you're ready then to respond well. You're ready to please God in that moment. If you receive my words, if you treasure up my commandments, if you make your ear attentive, if you pay attention, if you pay attention. 
and, and heed the counsel that comes your way, right? To make your ear attentive to something. And, and it's, it's more than just, oh, you should probably hear this. It's more, it, it's, it's to do more than just kind of glaze over and these, these, these voices are hitting your ears. No, it's to pay close attention and it's to seek to follow the counsel that you hear. So pay attention. Also, he says, incline your heart. Incline your heart to understanding. That word inclined, it means to like bend something a certain direction, to guide something a certain direction. So it's to bend your heart towards wisdom. Now we know we talk a lot about the heart in, in, in our church. It's, it's an important word and the Bible shows up hundreds and hundreds of times in the Bible. The reality is it's hard for us to find an English word that captures everything the Bible means when it says heart, right? We tend to think of emotion, Love, feelings, well, the word heart in the Bible is so much more than that. It does way more than the word we use today. In the Bible, the heart thinks, the heart ponders, the heart desires, the heart plans, the heart feels, the heart schemes, the heart accepts, the heart trusts. In essence, in Scripture, the heart is everything that happens in that immaterial, that inside of you. And it's so important, so all-encompassing that Solomon can say, guard your heart with all wisdom, for out of it, from your heart, flow the issues of life. As goes the heart, so goes the man. Right? So, so bend your heart towards wisdom. Martin Luther said that the definition of a sinner is someone who is wholly bent back towards themselves. Right? Well, we don't want to be back bent back towards ourself, right? We want to be bent towards God and His Word. The psalmist asked God, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain, right? The psalmist cried out and he prayed that God would bend his heart to treasure and value the testimony, the Word of the Lord. You know, God loves to hear that. You know, it, it, it's sure, it's an admission of weakness to say, Lord, bend my heart. Right? It's, an, it's an admission that I need God to work in me to desire what I should desire. But He delights to hear that. You don't have to pretend like you're strong before God. He delights when you're weak before Him and say, God, help me to treasure what I should treasure and to hate what I should hate. So to be open then to, to receiving wisdom is to be willing to submit yourself to God and His Word. It's to be so rooted and to store God's Word in your heart. To be open to wisdom then ends up being sort of the opposite of what the world means when they say, you know what, you should be open-minded. Right? The world says you should be open-minded since they oh, just whatever, you're right, she's right, they disagree, they're both right. I, I just got to be open-minded about this. Well, the Bible's pretty clear we ought to be solely, really, one-minded towards the Word of God. His voice, His counsel. So to receive, to, to receive wisdom, you must be open to it, right? You might expect then verse 3 to begin that, that then sentence, if this, then this. But Solomon is not done yet. He's got more if statements and what you see in these, these if statements there in verse 3 and in verse 4, they sort of intensify. First, you're open to wisdom. Then you call out, you pray for wisdom. Then you're searching for it like a treasure. 
right? There's a, there's a greater intensity as this passage develops. So you're open to wisdom, and you ask for it. You ask for it. Look there in verse 3. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. What do you do when you have a wayward child? When someone in your job offends you? When you don't know what you should do once you graduate high school? And that day is coming quicker and quicker and quicker. What do you do? You call out for wisdom. You call out for wisdom. Which is, again, knowing what God would have you do in any circumstance, knowing how to carry out what God would have you do, and having the desire and the will to follow through with it. All right, we got to call out for that. we got to cry out for that. Again, we're not completely passive in this endeavor. There's an active role that we must take, and it's to call out. Remember Lady Wisdom in chapter 1, she's calling out. She's, she's, she's saying, hey, here I am. Turn into me. Come get, come get wisdom. And now the son is encouraged in response to that to call out in return with a sense of urgency. Cry out. Plead with God. Again, like the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things. I am a sojourner on the earth. The psalmist says, hide not your commandments from me. Show me wisdom. Show me your will. Show me what you would have me do from your word. And then in verse 40, seek it. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. Again, the idea, some, some things are so valuable that they must be hidden away. Well, the idea here is not that wisdom is necessarily hidden in a secret spot that you can't find, but it must be sought after like a treasure. Wisdom isn't hiding, but it takes effort to find it. It takes work. It takes discipline. And it is valuable enough to be sought after with persistence and sacrifice. I think about how we think about treasure, gold, how we desire that. Right? Our, our, we are in a city right now that was founded on the desire for gold. Right? Custer wrote back to New York City and said, hey, when you pull up the roots, there's gold at the root balls. And people uprooted their entire lives. And they said, I want to get some of that. I'll put my life on the line. It wasn't very safe. At that time, they put their life on the line to go find gold in the Black Hills. And Solomon says that wisdom is so precious that that's how motivated you ought to be to go grab it. Not gold, but wisdom. You're more motivated, more excited. Can we use the word giddy? If you found some gold, you might be. Well, we're more excited, more giddy when we come upon wisdom than we would be coming upon gold. So if you are submissive to God's Word, if you desire it to the point of crying out for it, if you seek it, then, verse 5, you will get even more than you bargained for. Right? That second word we want to hone in on a little bit is then. Look in verse 5. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. If taught us how to seek wisdom, then gives us the results of seeking wisdom. Then you might fear, you might understand the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, and you might know God. 
the reason that we search the scriptures, the reason we call out, the reason we ask the Lord to open our eyes to behold wondrous things in His law, the reason we ask for wisdom and insight is so that we might know God and that we might fear Him, that we might have a better grasp of God's glory and His splendor and His majesty. You see, we don't just need to know what to do. We need to know God Himself. And the word says here that if we seek him out, if you truly seek him out, you will find him. To understand the fear of the Lord there is to properly understand to uh, or respond to God and all his majesty and glory. You see, that, that word fear, again, we, we've tried to define this several times, and, and each time we come across it, I'm just going to try to do a better, a better job. But true fear of God, you might think of it this way. We've used all kinds of illustrations Think of it this way. We, we tend to think of terror, right? Well, fear of God is expressed, I think, in the book of Revelation when, when John is caught up and he sees the, the glorified Christ and he says, I fell down as if I was dead. He could not help but fall before the glory of Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus say? He looks at him and says, fear not, fear not. It is to understand the majesty of God and the love of God towards those who are in Christ. Right? Because of the love of God, it's something less than terror, but I'm still trembling at Him, yet I hear the words, fear not. Psalm 103.17 helps us sort of put this together in our mind. But the steadfast love of the Lord, all right, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. On whom? to those who fear Him. Right? We actually even see it in our text in verse, verse 5, to know God, so you're going to fear God and you're going to know God, and to know God is to be in close, personal relationship with Him. So you're in this loving, intimate relationship, yet you fear Him. And we quake and tremble before Him because He is so far beyond us. And the result is the person who fears the Lord delights in God, delights in God, doesn't run from God, but runs towards God, delights in Him, and delights even in His commands. Psalm 112, verse 1, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. You wouldn't expect that together unless we properly understand what fear of the Lord is. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commands. That's parallelism. To, to, to delight in God and to fear God is to delight in His commands. One Puritan said it this way, slavish fear dreads nothing but hell and punishment. Right? There's a sinful fear of the Lord that says, I hate God because He's judged, because he's, he, 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 I am accountable to Him. So, you know what? I'm just dreading fear, hell and punishment. Filial, filial fear, that's like, parental fear or family fear, dread sin itself. The one is mixed with love to him. The one looks on him as a revenging judge, the other as a holy father. To those to whose holiness the heart is reconciled and the soul longs to be conformed. True fear of the Lord loves God, delights in God, and wants to be conformed to God's will and His purposes. There's another 
then statement, right? What's another result of our pursuit of wisdom? It's there in verse 9. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. You'll understand righteousness, justice, and equity. So what is the, the fear of the Lord leads a person to delight in God and so want to be conformed to Him, to walk in His ways. He is righteous. He is just. He is fair. Right? Remember that Solomon is writing to his son who may very well one day become a king. It's going to be important for this king to want to be conformed to God's image and to rule with justice and equity and righteousness. There's another result given there in verse 11. Then, it's continuing that, that line from verse 9, then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Verse 11, discretion will watch over you, understanding will guard you. There's well, One of the results of, of fearing God and finding wisdom is that you are protected. There's a level of deliverance, knowing God, fearing Him, submitting to His Word, growing in wisdom, Proverbs says, is a protection. Protection from what? Well, verse 12, it delivers you from the way of evil. It delivers you from the way of evil. And then, so then from like 12 to 20, there's these two types of people that, that wisdom can protect you from. Well, one is evil men. Right? You see that at the, the end of verse 12. From men of perverted speech, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech. Right? So how do we recognize this, this evil man from which we should desire to be protected from? We should desire to stay away from his path. Well, there, there's a few things in the text. How do you recognize what, what he means when he says evil man or perverted man? Well, one is their speech. You saw it there in verse 12, men of perverted speech. That's not just sexually perverse, but their words are, are running in the opposite direction of righteousness. Perverse here means something like turned around, upside down. You have God's way, and, and, and they've completely flipped it upside down. They call truth error. They call error truth. They call good evil, and they call evil good. You can know by speech, right? I, I, we talked about the importance of the heart earlier. Well, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In verse 13, he says, you can know them by their behavior. Who forsake the paths of up, uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. Their hearts are darkened, so they not only speak evil words, but they walk in ungodliness. That's characteristic of life. And you might know them by their desires in verse 14. Who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. Again, they relish in what is wicked and they look down on that which is righteous. They prefer darkness over uprightness. And so what Solomon is saying, the wise person looks on and says, I have so little in common with this person Right? Why would I want to walk down the path with, with this person? I have so little to, to, 
in common with them. If I engage this person, all right, let's put it in our context. If I engage this person, it will be to be a friend so that I might help them understand the gospel of Christ. That I might help them understand Christ. You see, a wise person has godly friends. An unwise person lives in isolation, thinking they can walk this life all by themselves without being influenced by everyone around them. When I was working with teens, again, I would say, you know, your closest friends ought to be those who who are encouraging you to love Christ. And then you love everyone around you. And you say, hey, come come with us as we seek to know God and to push others towards Christ. You know, even if you look at verse 20, there's this path. The righteous are on this path together. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep the paths of the righteous. The righteous are sort of walking this path together. That's why we so emphasize church, church membership here, because that's what we're trying to do together. We're trying to walk together to know God and to love God. And we have to link arms in order to do that. It's something we do together. So wisdom will, will keep you from that path of the evil man. And then in verse 16, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. So notice that word deliver again in verse 16. It showed up in verse 12, delivering you from the way of evil. Verse 16, delivered from the forbidden woman. Your translation may say strange woman, it's, it's, it's the one who would seek to lead the son away with, with enticing words. She has a way of, as you see, even in the way she talks, she has a way of making the illicit seem so desirable. What's true of her in verse 17, she's abandoned the companion of her youth. She's abandoned the covenant that she made with God. And Solomon is warning here about the dangers of, of sexual sin. And as you may know, Solomon could have done a lot better in following his own counsel, right? His heart was led astray into idolatry because of his many, many wives. But here, this is is something bigger than Solomon. Here in God's inspired text, we see the danger inherent in sexual sin, which we, we would define as any sexual activity outside the God-ordained boundaries of marriage. Right? So we would say God has not designed sex just for mature people or in love people or committed people or consenting people, but for those who have covenanted together before God. And the one who is wise... Solomon says, the one who is wise, the one who fears God, can be delivered from the clutches of that that sexual sin, that lust, the enslavement to sexual desires. Part Part of wisdom is seeing the results, seeing past sort of the enticing words to verse 18. The words seem right, but ultimately it leads to death. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they gain the paths of life. Solomon says, seek seek wisdom and it will protect you from this sin-cursed world. Those who would seek to entice you to walk down a different path. So if you seek wisdom, then you will know God and fear Him. 
and you will be delivered, the text says, from these paths of darkness. So the word if gave us, you know, how do I do this? How do I do what Proverbs 1 is telling me to do? The word then gave us the results. We looked at those in the text. And there's another, there's a third word here I want us to see. It's the word for. For gives us then the motive for pursuing wisdom. Look back in verse 6. Why should I aim at the conditions? Why should I I desire the result? Verse 6, for the Lord gives wisdom. Again, why should I strive after the ifs to experience the then of verse 5? Because all wisdom is bound up in God. All wisdom is bound up in Him. We sang about it in our first song this morning. God only wise. He alone is wise. No one can counsel him. Romans 11:33, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. Nobody has told God something that he should submit himself to. He alone is wise. All wisdom is wrapped up in him. Stephen Sharnock, the English Puritan, said this, only God is wise, right? Romans 16, 27, what we sang this morning. Only God is wise, properly speaking, perfectly, universally, perpetually, incomprehensibly, and infallibly. God's wisdom must be consistent with his other attributes, which is another reason he alone is properly wise, He says this, though his creatures made in his image may be derivatively wise, wisdom is the royalty of God, the proper dialect of all his ways and works. No creature can lay claim to it. He is so wise that he is wisdom himself. Right? There's a theological term called simplicity, which just means that God is not like the sum of all these different parts. It's not that God has wisdom. He is the very definition of wisdom. Wisdom. If there, so, so then what Sharnock said is important. We might be deriv- derivatively wise. right? So what he's saying is if you have an ounce of wisdom, it's because it has come down to you from above. He alone can grant it because he alone possesses it. Right? It reminds me of the way the Bible talks about holiness, right? When God shows up, burning bush, Moses says, oh, i got to take my shoes off. This ground is holy ground. There's nothing inherent in the dirt that was holy, that was set apart. What happened is God showed up. And when God shows up, that became holy. It became set apart. It became sacred. And so it is with wisdom. If I am to walk in wisdom, I must be related properly to God. I must know Him because all wisdom comes down through Him. And then notice how God expresses His wisdom. Kyle, why do you keep talking about the Bible? Why do you keep talking about God's Word? Well, verse 6 says, From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. God's wisdom by His grace grace and design is, is given to people through words. And so, as these words are given, we must be open to receiving them. We must call out for for understanding of them. We must seek them like precious treasure. 
the reality is if God alone is wise, then we cannot be wise apart from God's revelation of Himself. You know, if you, were, if you weren't at the biblical counseling conference we did uh, a couple weeks ago, I'd encourage you specifically to go listen to Dr. Carson's session on creation as a counseling event. And he made the point in that session that, God, that man needed God's voice bef- even before the fall. Man needed instruction even before sin entered the world. And the result was the fall of actually heeding a separate voice, the voice of Satan. And that we need to be reoriented back to God's way through his word. Again, I don't have time to say everything he said, but I would encourage you to go listen to that. We should pursue wisdom uh, because all wisdom is bound up in God. There's another four there in verse 10. Another motivation. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Why should I seek, why should I seek God first and seek to gain wisdom? Because it will change your desires. God will change your desires. Those things that used to be pleasant to you, those things that you used to desire are unmasked and you begin to desire to live God's way in God's world for God's glory. The the, the commands of God become a delight to you. God changes you through the Spirit. And and part of what happens when, when a person comes to Christ, when they are made alive, they see the glory of the gospel, they embrace Christ, they're given the gift of the Spirit, is that God begins to change them from the heart, from the inside out. And even those things, like Dave prayed so well this morning, even those things that are a temptation to you, even those things that, that you still sinfully long for, right? We do what we don't want to do. We don't do what we want to do. Even those things, you, you, you begin to despise them even if you give yourself over to them for a season. They become deeply dissatisfying to you. So now, Lord willing, we are in a position, I think, to understand how this text sort of fits together. Fear of the Lord is that which protects me from evil and sinful temptation through giving me a delight in God that supersedes these lesser desires. All right, let me say that again. Fear of the Lord is that which protects me from evil and sinful temptation through giving me a delight in God that supersedes these lesser desires. You've probably heard that C.S. Lewis quote where he said, the problem isn't that we have too strong a desires towards sinful things. It's that our It's that we have too weak a desire to be satisfied fully in God. He says something like we're playing in a mud puddle when we've been offered a vacation at the sea. We're settling when we choose something other than wisdom. So then we see that that fear of the Lord is not just the sum of our external behavior. right? It's not that I can just check enough boxes on my to-do list, and if I check this box, it means I must fear the Lord. Wisdom is to be pursued diligently, but it is not something that I can attain on my own. This is a gift of God's grace. A proper fear of the Lord is the result of that deeper heart transformation that God does through the proclamation of the gospel of Christ, and that then leads to outward change. 
it leads to change. And this is the only sort of change, this is the sort of change that can only come through the work of Christ. Right? Flip over to Romans 3 for a minute. Many of you will be familiar with this text. Paul says, beginning there in verse 10, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. That reminds us of Proverbs 1. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. So Paul just levels this devastating blow. There's none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. None righteous, no, not one. And then he describes sort of what sin does. It, it, It reveals itself in its speech. We saw that earlier in chapter 2. It reveals itself in actions when they're swift to shed blood. But what's the underlying root of this? Verse 18, there is no fear of God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul goes on, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So what do I do in response to this devastating blow that's been dealt by the Apostle Paul that if, I, if I'm part of no one or everyone in, in, verse, in chapter 3, if I'm part of that group, which, which we all are, there's no works that I can do to fix this problem that's been leveled at me. But now, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law Although, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there, there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. He's a propitiation. Right, So we had this devastating critique. No one seeks God, none righteous, no works that I can do. But now this gift of God's righteousness is available because Jesus Christ has become what Paul says, the propitiation, which is the substitute, the wrath-bearing sacrifice of God. And if I, if I turn to Christ in faith and I throw myself at Him, I put all, well, the full weight of my life on Jesus Christ, confessing that there's nothing in me that could earn righteousness. But I'm trusting that not only did Jesus live on this earth and He lived a perfect life and He's the Son of God and He died, but that He did it in my place as, as my substitute, then, then what happens is this great exchange where Christ took on Himself which should have come to me, right? The wrath that belongs to those who aren't righteous, who do no good, who have all turned aside, who have all become worthless, who, who do no good and, 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 and cannot work for it. He takes that punishment so that I might be credited with the very righteousness of Christ. 
We are united with Christ in such a way that we are treated the way that Christ deserved to be treated because he was treated the way I should have been treated. Right, so we cannot understand properly fear the Lord apart from the cross. Right, A different Puritan said this, Nothing is so well fitted to put the fear of God, which will preserve men from offending Him. That's what we just read in Proverbs 2. The fear of God will preserve men from offending Him. Well, nothing is so well fitted to put the fear of God, which will preserve men from offending Him, into the heart as an enlightened view of the cross of Christ. There, he says, shines spotless holiness, inflexible justice, incomprehensible wisdom, omnipotent power, holy love. None of these, he says, sort of outshine the other. They're all seen clearly in the cross where the justice of God is poured out and God demonstrates his love for us there in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He said they mingle their beams and shine with eternal splendor. The just judge the merciful Father, the wise governor. Nowhere, nowhere outside of the cross, he says, does justice appear so awful, mercy so amiable, or wisdom so profound. We cannot understand fear of the Lord apart from understanding that nothing in us demands that God love us. Right? There's nothing in me that, keep, that, that, that should move God towards me. Yet, because of his character and his kindness and his grace, he has placed his love on me and demonstrated in Christ. This is an irrevocable and an unconditional love. And only when those two realities are so deeply embedded in our hearts will we fear the Lord in the truest sense. Right? How can love and justice meet? How can it be true that, only, that, that, that we who only should experience the harshness of God should be experienced, those who experience the love of God? Well, it's only in Christ, right? It's only in Christ, only through His work. He took the fierceness of the wrath of God that we might become the object of God's delight and love. If you are in Christ, what, what is true of the Son becomes true of you. And in Luke chapter 4, the father looks at the son. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And if you are in Christ, God delights in you as he delights in his son. You know, I was listening to the song. We were going fishing on Saturday. That's totally pointless. To the, but I was listening to the song that, that was repeating these words. Your, it's, it's singing to God, right? Your heart won't stop coming after me. Your heart won't stop coming. And I began to think there's really two ways that I can think about, about these words. I could take them in a self-exalting, self-centered way. I am so lovable that God just keeps coming after me. I am so desirous that when I stray, the Lord can't stand to be without me, but He comes after me anyways. But to me, the, these words were words of deep comfort, not because of self-exaltation. I began to think, like, what, what, keeps me, what keeps me in the place where I can rejoice in the truth that God will never leave me nor forsake me without sort of putting all of this on me and my own goodness? 
How can I sing those words that are not self-centered and self-focused? Well, the answer is in union with Christ. It's what we just read in Romans chapter 3. The cross reminds me that God's unconditional, unfailing, never-ending love for me is not because of something innate inside of me, but that I've been swallowed up in Christ. And that for God to leave me or forsake me would be to forsake his own son because I am in Christ. And what's true of the son becomes true of me. And so notice, if you want to fear God, our eyes must be drawn past just just the benefits of the cross, but towards the orchestrator of it. Right? We must move beyond. Hopefully our hearts are been pushed, not just say, wow, I'm glad that I received the benefits of the cross, to actually seeing God for gracious and loving and kind and merciful. Fear of the Lord is not properly experienced until we move our thoughts beyond what we receive and we respond in thankful praise for the one who gives salvation. You see, fear of the Lord protects us from thinking that we have it in ourselves to stay away from the evil man or the forbidden woman. What you need is a superior delight in God. To delight in Him more than you delight in these lesser temptations. We will put away sin and temptation as we tremble at His beauty, grace, and splendor. There's one last four there. In verses 21 and 22. And it, again, it reminds us of Christ. For the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out. The upright, in Proverbs, receive the blessing of life, and the wicked receive death and judgment. Well, we've already seen that. We are not the upright. We are not those who have earned it. We've seen that Christ is the way to life, that He alone was actually upright. And if you hope to be counted righteous, if you hope to know God, if you hope to delight in Him, you must come through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only way. That's what He said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Let's pray together. Lord God, forgive us when we settle. Forgive us when our our hearts are not content in you. When we believe the lie from the beginning that, that there are pleasures that we should seek outside of your will. Lord, help us see those things for what they are. And Lord, help us to delight this morning in our union with Christ. Help us to fear you properly from the heart. In Jesus' name. Amen.